zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Continental Divide, released September 18, 1981. It was written by Lawrence Kasdan, directed by Michael Apted, and released by Universal. Continental Divide was the debut film of Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, named after his first 35mm short, Amblin, after the successes of Sugarland Express and Jaws, Spielberg was offered a four-picture deal by Universal for titles to be produced under the Amblin Entertainment banner. Looking at the complete list, this film is probably the least known and worst of the 20 films that Amblin would go on to produce in the 80s. The only other one I didn't recognize as a great film was a 1989 film called Dad. Does that sound familiar? No. Nope. Jack Lemmon, Ted Danson, and Ethan Hawke as grandfather, father, and son. I, I love that, though. Yeah, I like the cast, <laughs> and, and uh, the premise seems fine, but uh, never heard of it. Everything else is major titles that we've all seen multiple times, because Amblin just did Spielberg and Zemeckis movies, basically, and right. Joe Dante movies. But this was part of a, a four-pack, and it was the first one? Yes. And the other three were like Poltergeist, E.T., and whatever he did after E.T., maybe the Twilight Zone movie or something like that. But it was like three huge titles in yeah. a row. When Kasdan's agent put the script for Continental Divide on the market, four studios were bidding on it simultaneously, presumably based on the strength of The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders, and not because of this script itself. The script was selected by Spielberg as a thank you to screenwriter Kasdan for having written Raiders of the Lost Ark. What confuses me more is that he was invited to write Raiders based on the strength of this screenplay, which we'll obviously get to, but it's really sloppy. The pacing is weird, the act structure is wonky, the characters are inconsistent, and the film has no clear theme or message. So I don't know why Spielberg read this and was like, he needs to handle my Indiana Jones thing. The first public announcement of the film attached Steven Spielberg as an executive producer alongside his Sugarland Express producing partners Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, but only Spielberg stayed attached through the film's release. Spielberg was even briefly attached to direct, but Lucas talked him over to Raiders, and he eventually tried to pass off directing duties to screenwriter Kasdan before they landed with Michael Apted. Jill Clayburg had agreed to star on the condition that one of three actors was brought on to play her love interest, James Caan, Christopher Walken, or John Belushi. The character as written was a slim romantic type, <laughs> and yet Belushi won out. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was like, like, it was like James Caan, okay, Christopher Walken, okay, it was like a, like a, like, you know, you know. Makes sense. Man, Bony yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then John Belushi. <laughs> yeah, weird choice. I think it was just because he was big at the time uh, in terms of popularity. Consequently, Belushi lost 40 pounds for the part. He also hired a bodyguard to keep him away from drugs and alcohol for the full making of the film after a difficult time making Blues Brothers. Unfortunately, when he reteamed with Aykroyd for Neighbors later the same year, the set was once again awash with cocaine. The character of Ernie Socek, played by Belushi in the film, was based on Chicago Tribune columnist Mike Royko, a personal friend of Belushi's who would go on to eulogize the actor the following year. Royko's articles dealt largely with Chicago's political corruption. Despite her terms being met, Clayburgh abandoned the project, 
and Blair Brown was considered just as the 1980 actor strike began and pushed back the production start because the shoot had to be scheduled around specific weather conditions. Brown, Apted's top choice for the role, was officially attached as the strike ended. She was chosen because of a resemblance to a young Catherine Hepburn, which is the feeling they were going for with the character. They actually wanted it to feel like a Hepburn and Tracy type movie. I don't think they succeeded at that. No, I don't think so either. Belushi and Brown arrived on location early for extensive mountain climbing instructions, which is why we'll see them do most of their own climbing in the film. The cast and crew were airlifted to set each day at an elevation of 13,000 feet, which proved a problem for Belushi, who was in constant need of an oxygen mask on account of the thinner atmosphere. That seems so unnecessary. It was unnecessary, and the cabin was broken apart and relocated further down the mountain with all the prop trees moved as well so that they could make it look like the top of the mountain again yeah because it doesn't like it doesn't matter it's not like you're seeing wide shots of this place yeah. all the time it like, could it could literally have been almost anywhere it could have been a set it could have been fake snow like you know just all that's of... not apted style though apted is very cinema verite i mean he's a documentarian also so I, I get it but this is not that kind of movie yeah an interior cabin was built in a nearby town at the foot of the mountains and eventually moved to the Universal lot for pickups. On a budget of $9 million, it made $7 million in the box office. Critically, though, it was well-received, and Brown was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance, losing to Bernadette Peters for Pennies from Heaven. We start with a shot across the river looking at the city skyline of Chicago. After a series of dissolves, we end at the former Chicago Sun-Times building, which was demolished and is now the site of a Trump Tower. Then we are inside on the actual news floor. Across tables overflowing with paperwork, we see Ernie Suchak, played by John Belushi, working on his latest column, Good Afternoon Chicago. That's the name of the column. The article reads, Alderman Yablonowitz has his fingers in another sticky city hall pie. His editor Howard, played by Alan Garfield, is able to hijack the document to call Suchak to his office from across the building. Howard waves to Suchak through his office window, and Suchak waves back before flipping him off. We see Suchak's latest column being printed, Yablonowitz, I don't like it. The elements of the article are cut out with X-Acto knives and placed in the issue's layout, and then they're printed en masse and delivered to various newspaper stands via trucks emblazoned with billboards for Ernie Suchak's column. He speaks to a man at the newspaper stand who has just received today's Chicago Sun-Times. Much later in the film, we'll learn this man's name is Fiddle, apparently. Yeah. I, I was desperate to try to figure out who this guy was because his voice sounds so familiar, but I don't recognize... Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing for him. Weird. For some reason, he's mad at Suchak for writing such a good article in today's paper, even though he clearly hasn't read it yet if the stacks were just dropped off. Today, you've gone too far. What do you mean? Stuff that good could get an innocent person killed. Oh, I'm not that innocent. Don't let the devil fool you. Me! An innocent person like me! What is he talking about? I, I think it means that since he's selling the newspaper or that Sochek frequents his stand, that he's going to be at Target. He thinks Yablonowitz is going to go around killing newspaper salesmen to keep his secrets? No, but I think that if a, a car came by and a drive-by shooting happened on the street... While he was at this newsstand. Yeah, well, he does specify he doesn't even want Suchak to buy papers at this stand anymore. Would you be offended if uh, I asked you to buy your papers at O'Leary's for a while? I'll pay for them. As Suchak continues down the street, he is met by a woman named Agatha who is possibly a prostitute. I don't know. But there's a woman who seems to know who he is, and she says, Hi, Suchak. Great piece, baby. Well, it's about time you say that about me, Agatha. <laughs> See ya. 
She leaves after he gets his punchline in. That's the only purpose Agatha plays in the film. We cut to an alley across the street from a playground where a man in a trench coat named Mr. Hellinger hands over information to Suchak in an envelope. More incriminating details on Yablonowitz. While they speak, Hellinger's young son tries to climb a fire escape. Suchak tries to pay the man for his trouble, but he waves off the cash. Hellinger stops his son from climbing and then makes the point to Suchak that he's petrified of heights. Never get me up on one of those. I get vertigo just standing on my toes. Really? I've been that way since I was his age. Anyway, now that we've established something I will never do in my life, <laughs> I guess I'll be on my way. The man takes his son's hand and they walk back down the alley toward the playground. We cut to a town hall meeting where Alderman Yablonowitz orchestrates a unanimous vote forcing some unpopular legislation through. Hellinger is here advocating against it. After the meeting, Hellinger steps outside into a phone booth and calls Suchak, 10 feet away in a neighboring phone booth, with all the pertinent details. Immediately we cut to the article and the next issue of the Chicago Sun-Times. Yablonowitz flouts 16 building laws. Is this a record? These seem like public meetings, though, so it shouldn't yeah. be so amazing that this reporter is able to get information that's being discussed publicly. Yeah, but I guess it's um, either it's open to the public, but who's showing up? Or that he's turning it around so quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, plus, uh, there was this is the moment where they have the sonographer stop taking record yeah. while they're giving the meeting. Yeah. Sometimes! Suit check does it again! Sometimes! done it again the son of a bitch has done it again every goddamn day five editions a day me my wife and now the metro deal metro deal i get that we're trying to set suchak up as a famous local hero but everyone's enthusiasm rings really false and yablonowitz has played like a cartoon villain like he might as well be chomping on a cigar and twirling yeah. his mustache at night suchak is walking down the street when he's mugged by two men at first i assume they were sent by yablonowitz but they pull him aside in an alley and they recognize him. They're actually fans of his work and some of the things he said about their neighborhood in the paper. He recognizes them as members of the Rasta Devils and asks about some of their gang's internal conflicts while they relieve him of his wallet and watch. Just then, the cops pull up and one of them gives Suchak his wallet back in exchange for a five-minute head start. How many know it's five minutes? My watch! They toss the watch back too. As two cops walk up to him, he tells them not to worry because the muggers didn't actually take anything, but he quickly realizes he's in more danger now. They start punching him in the gut, and we cut to Suchak waking up in the hospital. His editor, Howard, is seated beside him and advises him to leave town for a bit and let things cool down. Suchak is not interested. I feel like an editor would not advise this. Yeah. He would just yeah. be like, keep writing. I don't care what they did to you. <laughs> We cut from the hospital to his editor's home where Suchak has been invited to dinner with Howard and his wife Sylvia. They're trying to sell him on the Nell Porter story, but he keeps telling them he's the worst possible choice for an assignment in the Rocky Mountains. She's never been interviewed. Four years she's been up there, completely alone. Apart from her eagles. Yes, she's a highly respected scientist. She's an eagle freak. She is a holy woman. Oh. Well, why didn't you say that? Well, that makes all the difference. A holy woman. Is there any more cauliflower? Suchak turns down the offer so Sylvia stares at him with puppy dog eyes, and he informs her that that has never worked on a Suchak. And of course we follow with a Gilligan cut to Suchak and a climbing guide named Deke, 
hiking through the hills at the base of the Rocky Mountains. I also think that this premise is a little weird. It's just like, hey, you're a really famous political writer. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go write on this person who's never been interviewed that people would be dying to hear about? Like, yeah. what? Nobody's dying to hear about the eagle lady that nobody's interviewed. You know yeah. who else is, hasn't been interviewed? Like millions of other people. Yeah. <laughs> Unless she's supposed to be like the Jane Goodall of eagles. Yeah. Like, like she's just super well known. But I, I don't get that impression. And there are presumably other reporters for this paper that they could have sent for this. But they sent Suchak. I, I feel like the stakes should have been higher for him to leave. Like he, he got roughed up by the police. It Because uh, we will see higher stakes later. Right. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that should have been going on already. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Maybe, I, maybe it was originally and then they rearranged it. I, I, I feel like the hard cut would have been funnier with him and the editor out on the street talking and then his apartment explodes and then we hard cut to him and the yeah. Rockies. Suchak is obviously not fit for this terrain and when he refers to the path as mountains, Deke claims they haven't even gotten to the mountains yet. He looks for snakes, but Deke tells him there's much worse here. They hear a sound nearby which Deke identifies as possum, but when they both look down from the trail, they see a man wearing furs and living off the wilderness. He is apparently nicknamed Possum by the locals. You got lots of possums around here? Just that one. A large deer steps out of the trees behind Possum, and Possum takes on an attack stance. Suchak asks how dangerous this Possum character is, and we hear the man go after the deer and take it down unarmed. The scream sound he makes when he gives chase reminds me of the sound Slimer makes when he first charges Dr. Venkman in the Sedgwick Hotel. Yeah, there's a lot of bad, like, sound effects. Yeah. That night, when they make camp, Deke tells Suchak that Nell Porter hates reporters and almost killed the last one that came up here. That's how protective she is of the eagles in this area. Deke and Suchak continue to climb slowly across a sheer mountain face, and Suchak is obviously having a difficult time. Deke comments on how thin the air is in these mountains, just as Suchak pulls out a box of cigarettes. He's two puffs into the first one when he passes out from the lack of oxygen. Sometime later, he wakes up to find himself surrounded by black bears. He prays to God that if he could save him from these bears, Suchak would never ask for anything else. Just then, Deke returns and shoos the bears away. Suchak returns to his backpack to find his cigarettes have been mostly eaten by bears. They finally reach Nell Porter's cabin, nestled in the snow in front of a row of pine trees, but she's not home. Before he leaves, Deke gifts Suchak a bunch of his supplies. He explains that he was only hired to take him up and down the mountain, so he'll be back in two weeks to pick him up. Suchak waits alone outside the cabin for a while, but the cold gets to him, and he busts in the door and starts a fire in the fireplace. He wakes up that night with a walking stick jabbed into his throat, and Nell stood over him. She guesses he's a lost tourist who came in out of desperation, but makes him confirm before allowing him to sleep on her couch. The next morning, she's cooking him an extravagant breakfast, and they introduce themselves. Nell tells him she noticed two tracks outside, and he confirms he was led here by Deke Lewis. She shares a funny anecdote about Deke being a horrible timekeeper. Last October, he told me he delivered some supplies in November. He showed up in May. She asks where he's headed, and he evades the question by asking her to repeat it, which is a tactic we'll see more of from him later. Unless they cut a scene I don't remember about him having hearing problems. But he's constantly saying, pardon? What? And making her repeat her questions. Even when he's not trying to avoid answering them. Where are you headed? Pardon? Pardon? Where am I headed? That's right. Uh, now? Yes. Here. He confesses that he's a reporter in Chicago and that he's here to do a profile on her. 
She's furious that he never asked permission to write a story on her before showing up and tells him to leave. His tactics to convince her to let him stay annoy me more than what he's being punished for. Miss Porter, I'll die out there. Life is full of little trade-offs. I mean it. I mean it. There's no way that voice would make me change my vote if I were her. Porter heads outside to chop wood and Suchak follows later with an olive branch. Wash the dishes. And I wanted her to say, does that mean you ate my breakfast? Or wasted my clean water? Yeah. I, uh, I, I liked this as in terms of like uh, men being proud that they did the bare minimum mm-hmm. as like <laughs> somebody else who's living in the household. <laughs> the bare minimum, the simple bare minimum. She tells him that she hates newspapers and the news. I'm not clear what her exact problem is, though. You're not supposed to shoot the messenger. She complains about what she reads in the paper, that it sickens her. But aren't those just stories about what happened? Do you hate the news or Earth? I feel like Suchak should have been a snobby pop culture columnist or something, because the way she complains about him, it's like he is a TMZ reporter and not a news reporter. But that way we would think his work was immature and unnecessary. But he spends his days unveiling political corruption, so he's doing the city good, and it actually hurts the story of the film that neither of them have arcs, because there's nothing for them to change about themselves. Right. Suchak asks what lured her out to this godforsaken place, and she's offended by the term. She drags him to a hilltop to absorb the view of the Rocky Mountains. Where are we going? Church. Pardon? Church. The oldest one in America. The next morning, Suchak finds Porter giving the cabin an oil change. It looks like she's actually working on the generator, but it's underneath the building for some reason. So what does she mean by the oldest one in America? Aren't like There's definitely churches east of the Rockies. Where... <laughs> I was like, are, aren't all of the outdoors the same age? Yes, but I think she's just saying that Nature. Nature was the first church, but the first churches in America would have been built on the East Coast. We're not talking about actual churches. She tells Suchak that he'll have to leave with whoever shows up first, be it Deke or a hiker or even an eagle, that he can follow to civilization. Can you follow an eagle to civilization? I thought the whole point was that they lived here. That's why she's here. (laughs) He also doesn't move that fast as an eagle flies. Suchak makes it clear how desperate he is to leave if he could. He's down to nine cigarettes. I want to stay here only marginally more than I want to die trying to escape. (laughs) Are you laughing in there or crying? She gives him permission to stay the two weeks and he thanks her. Her only condition is that he scrap the story he plans to write about her. We cut right to him writing the story. The opening line is about how hot she is and yet how frigid and that she needs more makeup. He's startled when Nell walks in and he hides the story in his vest. We learn later this is unnecessary. She tells him that she's about to take a shower and he turns his back to her since the shower is open to the cabin. She orders him to wait outside. Before he leaves, he asks if he can join her tomorrow on an eagle hike, still promising not to write the story just for observation. It's not easy up there, you know. I'll manage. I had a cousin in the Boy Scouts. The next day, as they scale more mountain paths, it's clear Suchak can barely keep up. She stops for a moment and hands him binoculars to spot some nearby bald eagles. She sets up a telescope to observe them closely. Suchak coughs and she shushes him. He can't believe that talking from this distance would scare the birds away, and he calls BS. Are you telling me? Obviously, he was about to ask if whispering or throat clearing would really scare these birds away at this distance, but it does. Suchak watches the two bald eagles as they continue to fly out over the valley below them, The birds swoop and claw at each other in a playful manner. Sometime later, Porter takes note on the birds while Suchak stares at her. That night, 
She's loading the fireplace with wood while he sits at a table over a plate and tells her it's no big deal up here. No disrespect, Miss Porter. It's no big deal up here. I don't even know what that means, but seconds later he's fallen asleep at the table, snoring precariously above a knife and fork pointed at his face, and she laughs instead of moving him. Is the joke that he's tired so it is a big deal? I guess. What does a big deal mean? I thought it meant important. It's not important up here? He could still be suffering the symptoms of altitude sickness. Maybe. The next morning, Suchak is wrapped in a blanket on the porch again while she takes another shower. Suchak mixes some breakfast from the supplies that Deke gave him. She apologizes for not sharing more of her supplies, but she only has enough for one person. While she's out watching the birds, Suchak stays in and collects boards for a crafting project. By the time she gets home that night, he's just finishing cooking a meal. What's that? Goulash, my grandmother's recipe. No, no. This. Not bad, huh? She points to the swinging door that he has attached to her shower stall, but the pieces of wood are so far apart that they don't really provide any privacy at all. He puts a plate of goulash on the table for her and apologizes for the supplies he used. I had to use real ingredients for ingredients. I hope you don't mind. He offers to share his crappy food with her tomorrow, but she suggests skipping food altogether that day instead. Once she's had a bite, she's very impressed by his grandmother's goulash. I'm surprised that this doesn't come back at all. The goulash? Well, the fact that he took extra supplies and like she's not yeah. even, she's not mad about it and it's fine. Yeah, there's there's so much to this movie where they like set it up where you're like, oh, I see where this is going and then it just falls flat. The next morning he hears the water starting up and turns to watch her between the sparse slats of the shower door. When she catches him, he pretends to read a book. I'm assuming that she's collecting water from some source, but... Uh, Snow. Right, but... Uh, she, I, because I, I don't see any kind of like storage tank, so I don't know where how much water she has, but she takes a lot of showers. That's true. <laughs> and and I was just thinking, like, yeah, I I appreciate taking taking showers, but it seems like she's showering in alarmingly large amounts and and using just tons of water when yeah, because he's outside for a while. It looks like yeah, and it just it just seems I don't know like with with limited supplies, water would also be one of those things that I would want to conserve. Back in the mountains, we see Porter getting some film camera footage of the same bald eagles when shots begin to ring out. They trace the sound to a pair of poachers, and using her walking stick, Porter is quick to detain them both. She knocks the guns from their hands and turns one of their shotguns on them. We're from the Department of the Interior Game Protection. What the hell? Just shut up! Mr. Harris! She tells them that there are only 2,000 bald eagles left in the wild because of assholes like him. As of 2022, there are currently in the neighborhood of 315,000, so they're making a recovery. She takes their IDs, destroys their shotguns on a nearby rock, and advises them to turn themselves in at a nearby ranger station. If they don't comply, the FBI will start tracking them down. After she storms away, Suchak tries to back up her threats. Okay. At night, Porter is showing Suchak the path that the eagles have taken on a map, and suddenly he's trying to kiss her, but she shuts it down immediately. Suchak continues writing in his diary, expressing a fear that he's been here too long because he's forgotten the names of the shops on Michigan Avenue. Porter snatches away his legal pad, but can't read his writing because it's in a patented shorthand. Obviously, we were supposed to think he was going to get in trouble for writing about her, but it doesn't matter because she can't read it, so she can't prove anything. And in turn, that doesn't matter because he flat out admits to writing the article he promised not to. And finally, that doesn't matter because she's fine with the article being written now for no particular reason. Nothing has inspired this change in her opinion. 
She probably would have been had a change of opinion if she could read it and read that he just wrote that she's frigid. Yeah. It's literally just a piece on what you look like right now. And it's so obnoxious. It's like, she doesn't, she's not attracted to me. And that's a problem with her. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of an idiot isn't attracted to me? Why don't you do a story on me? Pardon? Things that happen should matter in a script. Otherwise, take them out. She walks away from him and he starts listing Michigan Avenue storefronts like, oh my God, I'm she turning back into me. a human. <laughs> The next day on their bird watch, she tells him her life story, but reminds him how to spell simple words along the way. I decided even before I left Gambia, that's G-A-M-B-I-A. I know how to spell Gambia. It reminded me of a similar moment in Adaptation, when Susan Orlean takes LaRoche to an orchid show, and they're having a bit of a tiff, so he starts condescending to her. And sure enough, they found this moth with 12-inch proboscis. Proboscis means nose, by the way. I know what proboscis means. Hey, let's not get off the subject. In a pissing contest. It's also a great argument because she spells it for him and then he admits that he already knows how to spell it, but he could never dispro- she could never disprove it because she has already spelled it for him. Right. But it's also right after she spelled another simple word for him and he was like, oh, okay, thank you. Like, you obviously knew how to spell that first word. Why did you wait until Gambia to be offended? It seems like Suchak is annoyed that her story isn't more interesting, and later when he tells her his story, she's just as annoyed about how boring it is. Maybe reporters find other people interesting because they're so goddamn boring themselves. Suchak, maybe people find eagles interesting for the same reason. So at least the screenwriter is confirming for us that both of these protagonists are intentionally boring. (laughs) I'm not imagining it. She repeatedly calls him Suchak and it grates on him. Everybody I know calls me Suchak. My name's Ernie. Start a trend. Call me Ernie. <laughs> when she refuses to call him Ernie, he tries to kiss her against her will again, and she reminds him she has asked him not to do that. Christ, what is it with you? I don't believe this. You're angry. Good God, what an ego. In the middle of the night, Porter calls to Suchak and announces he can't come with her tomorrow, but it's not because he keeps trying to kiss her against her will. Why that, not? That should be the reason. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great reason not to bring this guy and not to invite him into your cabin also. Yeah. Send this guy home now. Why not? Some things I do here I have to do on my own. The next morning she sneaks out with her walking stick and he follows her discreetly from a distance. She stops at a nearby fallen tree and Suchak notices Possum sneaking out of the woods. He starts making loud animal sounds and then bursts out of the tree line to chase her away. When he finally catches up, he lifts her in the air and they're quickly kissing, and Suchak realizes he has interrupted a date and retreats to the cabin. He frustratedly thumps the shower door and it collapses to pieces. When she comes back, he's peeling a potato. He has a big bandage around his thumb from where he hurt himself rebuilding the shower door. She asks if he's coming with her tomorrow, and he says, no thanks. When she leaves the next morning, Possum descends on the cabin and the men are quickly fighting. Possum defeats Suchak handily. Porter returns to break up the fight. That's no, just my body. Suchak uses an unfortunate derogatory term when asking who Possum is. Here we learn Possum's real name is Max Birnbaum. Turns out Suchak is a huge fan. Birnbaum was a former NFL player who walked away from an incredible career because he'd had enough of the corrupt system. Max Birnbaum? Mm-hmm. The Brooklyn behemoth Birnbaum? The three-time All-American at Michigan Birnbaum? The number one draft pick of the Washington Redskins Birnbaum? The defensive end who told the NFL to shove it up their defensive end? That Max Birnbaum? Well, let me shake your hand. This is an honor. May I have your autograph? 
Back inside the cabin, Max is dressing Suchak's wounds that he caused, while Porter tries to tell them both she's headed out for a hike. The two men are so fascinated with each other that they don't hear anything she says, and eventually she leaves. Turns out Max is a huge fan of Suchak's, too. Later, we see Porter and Birnbaum walking outside the cabin, and she tells him it might be time to call it quits on their relationship. He's very understanding and invites her to call on him if she ever needs a good fucking. As long as you're okay, now. If you ever feel like you sometimes feel. She watches Possum disappear back into the woods and returns to the cabin. Inside, Suchak is writing an article on his encounter with Max Birnbaum. He asks Porter if he can mention her in the article, but she claims not to know Birnbaum that well. Porter seems annoyed that he's writing an article about this football star and not her eagles, which she told him not to write about before she told him to write about them. Still not clear what this movie's about, but I'm sure we'll have an inciting incident any minute now. There's no real conflict. No. Like, there's, there's nothing right there's now. There's superficial conflict in the, like, oh, I came to your cabin, but you don't want me at the cabin. Oh, I'm writing the article, but you don't want me to write the article. But, like, but now it's okay that I'm writing the article. Yeah. And Yablonowitz is states away doing shit I don't care about. Right. Or the conflict is that he's making a pass at her. She doesn't want, like, there's only these tiny little, like, sub-conflicts. There's no conflict to this overall movie. Yeah. And then we get to one. And it, too, is not a real conflict. Yeah, everything just collapses immediately as soon as there's any tension. I kept waiting for this movie to become Target MacGyver. I really wanted a hit, a hit group of hitmen to come and try to find Suchek to kill him, and he has to rely on her mountain engineering and maybe even possum. Yeah, there's more guys with shotguns, but they're not here for eagles. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, they have to set up traps. They have to defend themselves. Uh, but that's not what this is that's, about. That's not what this movie's about. It turns out him being a reporter has almost nothing to do with what's going on. Yeah. That's why it could easily have been like he was just like a celebrity columnist and he could abandon his job and it wouldn't hurt anybody. This shouldn't have been two weeks in the cabin either. It should have been like four days. There's no reason to stretch this out so long. On their next eagle walk, instead of returning to the cabin at the end of the day, they set up a tent on a mountain peak. They lay down beside each other that night and he tries for another kiss and this time she condones it. Because she made that mistake... Suchak invites himself to climb on top of her, which she does not condone, and he's very forceful about it. She makes it clear that this is not what she wants, but she still has to shove him away. Porter goes into this weird lecture, trying to teach Suchak out of his incel ways. She suggests that conquering a mate, like conquering anything else, requires trying to see things from the perspective of your prey. Out here you only survive by understanding your opponent. Opponent? Thanks a lot. No, look, if you, if you want to tame or conquer or anything, you have to imagine what it's like being the object of that conquest or whatever. He doesn't care about her lesson. He'll just keep trying until she doesn't put up enough of a fight like he did with the kissing. The next day, they're scaling some particularly jagged rocks when they reach another peak. They locate a bald eagle's nest and watch it through binoculars. Porter knows the names of all these birds, and even though one named Max doesn't like them being here, she suggests they hang out to see if Bruno made the journey. Do you remember when Bruno didn't make the journey? <laughs> yes. What film was that? Uh, that Italian film whose name is uh, Duckling, Strangling a Duckling, Drowning Str a Duckling. Strangling a Duckling. Is it Strangling Drowning a Duckling? Torture a Duckling. Torture, torture a Duckling. <laughs> Don't wow. torture a Duckling. Well, because I was trying to remember how the kids died. One was strangled, one was drowned. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it had something to do. Hours and hours later, they spot Bruno, and Suchak sounds really excited, either because he legitimately cares about this eagle, 
or because this means they get to leave. I can't tell which because Belushi is not a great actor. Back in the tent together, she gives him a bald eagle feather for successfully making the journey. It looks like there was a snowstorm in the night, and the next morning, they're hiking through a few inches of powder until Suchak loses his balance and falls down a hillside. It's a pretty brutal fall that we see this stunt guy take over some hard rocks, and then when he stops, he isn't moving. Porter catches up with him and checks for broken bones. She tells him to lie still while she begins melting snow in a pot. She takes their rope and ties it in crisscross knots to form a sort of gurney shape in the snow, and then dumps the melted snow across the ropes before laying a blanket over that. She dumps the rest of the water into the blanket, which freezes in the shape of a toboggan. She moves Suchak into the sled and then straps him in. She is forced to drag him all the way back to the cabin, but first she rides him like a sled down the hill. We get a lot of terrifying shots of her lowering his body over the edge of a cliff face, and I kept expecting a moment like in The Simpsons when the EMTs drop Homer into Springfield Gorge over and yeah. over again. They make it back to the cabin, though. But it's all very kind of nonchalant, like, da, 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 I'm just taking you back across this mountain on its leg. Yeah, it doesn't look like, like she's dying or anything. No! Yeah. It doesn't even seem all that difficult, except for the moment where she's kind of lowering his body with some rope. And yeah. I'm like, okay. It seems like she could have done this and carried two people back to the cabin yeah. by herself. But it would have been a little bit harder. We're now at the one hour mark, and I have no idea where this film is going. <laughs> yeah. It's officially been two weeks, and Suchak expects Deke today. We get a quick shot of Porter massaging his back that night, and then he updates the beginning of his article to correct that Porter does not need makeup and that she should never use it. After a day or two, Suchak is comfortable enough using her cane to take care of himself at the cabin. She leaves for another eagle hike. In the middle of the day, a mountain lion slips into the cabin, and he tries to distract it with a giant roast on the table. Because they set up that he wants the door left open for reasons, even though he's always complaining about the cold. Yeah, his joke is that he wants to watch her butt when she leaves. And it's like, he could have easily opened this door later. There's no reason. But once, yeah, once, yeah, once she's out of the picture, why did you leave that door open? No, it's it's a needless setup thing, and it's completely on the nose. Like, man, I sure hate fire escapes. (laughs) It again, it would have been funnier that the door was closed when he hears like a scratching and he thinks it's her it's yeah like, oh back already and then he opens the door to the cougar and he, and he tries to close the door and he's like oh uh i think you got the wrong address the cat is uninterested in the roast and attacks suchak but we cut away from the attack to porter arriving hours later she picks up the tattered remains of suchak's hat and then finds the roast torn to shreds in the snow i was really hoping she would come back to find suchak's corpse and this movie would finally have done something interesting <laughs> Instead, she finds him injured and bloody on the floor, but alive. How was your day? Oh, she bandages him up again, so now he was injured, and then he was kind of healed, and now he's injured again. So nothing has changed in a few scenes. He says that he survived the attack because he used her strategy of trying to see things from the perspective of his opponent. I took my walking stick and hit him in the balls. You wouldn't have come up with that otherwise? You needed her in your head saying, think of what he doesn't want you to do. She asks him where he's hurt, and she kisses him everywhere he gestures. Where is it hurt? Is it hurt here? Is it hurt there? Over here. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this bit in a Lawrence Kasdan script? (laughs) Raiders? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, goddammit, anywhere doesn't it hurt? Here. (laughs) 
I'm pretty sure that this was in this first. And then Spielberg liked this part and was like, can you use it there? Or when Kasdan sat down to write it, he's like, he told me he liked this moment, so I'm going to use it in the Raiders script. But I'm sure it was in this script first. Because I feel like that would be insane for Kasdan to steal from his Raider script for this low-budget nothing right. movie. They're quickly making out on the bed, and this time she is comfortable undressing with him. We dissolve back to Chicago. Narration from his editor Howard suggests that Suchak is not the writer he was when he left. Suchak looks very depressed as he meanders down the sidewalk. His friend Agatha calls to him, but he ignores her. His friend Agatha from the beginning of the film, he's just ignoring her now. He tells Suchak that he should write about Yablonowitz and get back to his own self, but Suchak doesn't care about the city of Chicago anymore. You can start writing about Yablonowitz again. Who? Yablonowitz. Yablonowitz. Yablonowitz! Later, in his home office, Suchak stares at a row of eight pictures of Porter he apparently brought home with him. And they're like photographs of him and Porter together? Yeah. Did yeah, Possum did take one? these? <laughs> well, her camera might have a timer on it, but like... They just stapled a camera to an eagle. <laughs> there was one aerial shot. It checks out. The next day, Suchak turns in pornographic poems about nature and pretends it's a travel piece. People love travel pieces. When they're good. Even when they're lousy. These aren't good enough to be lousy. Howard promises not to publish this shitty article, and they go out for drinks. Somehow, in the two hours they've been gone, the article has already been published and delivered to newsstands because someone found it on Howard's desk. It's playing like an important moment, but honestly, who the fuck cares? There's no consequences to anything as a result of this article being printed. Yeah. It doesn't matter to the paper. It doesn't matter to Suchak. It doesn't matter to the people who accidentally got it published. It doesn't matter to anyone. And they don't mention it again after a quick shot of Howard screaming at the reporters. Suchak heads back to his regular newspaper stand, and proprietor Fiddle is reading his article and pinching his nose, saying P.U., like a character in a fucking Ben Garrison cartoon. On the newsstand, we can see the latest issue of Heavy Metal, which we, of course, saw adapted into an animated film earlier this season of the podcast. Fiddle reads Suchak all the other boring headlines from the Sun-Times latest issue, and one of them is... City Hall Clerk's Fire Escape Death. It's like, first of all, that's not how headlines work. They're usually like sentence structure, not just like sentence fragment. Also, that doesn't sound very boring if your point was, look at all these boring stories. A guy fell off a building and died. But wait a minute. Hellinger told us earlier that if Suchak ever got word that he died from falling off a fire escape, he should be suspicious of it. <laughs> it couldn't have just been heights. He couldn't have had Hellinger meet him on the roof of a tall building, and then they talk about his fear of heights there. They had to specifically spell out that he has a fear of fire escapes. What fucking garbage <laughs> foreshadowing. It's not even a fire escape that a person would justifiably be on. It's a fire escape of an abandoned building, so they're not even making it look like an accident. They're making it clear that they murdered this guy. The article also needlessly reminds us that Hellinger leaves behind a wife and son. Yeah, we remember. They were marching <laughs> off to a playground the last time we saw him. And he threw him off a building. Suchak runs to a taxi and asks to be taken to the Ambassador restaurant. He approaches Yablonowitz's table and accuses him of murdering Hellinger. The last place he'd go is up a fire escape, which is exactly why it was his last. Right, Alder. Get this truck out of Enjoy it. Yablonowitz's goons drag Suchak away from the table. We cut right to Suchak composing an article interspliced with him touching base with the people of the city to get back on track. Howard is happy to see it. We see a series of headlines all attacking Yablonowitz. At home, we see Suchak taking down his pictures of Porter and replacing them with photos of Yablonowitz, his new crush. Yeah. <laughs> also, I was like, okay, so this movie's wrapping up here. It's like, there's still 30 minutes yeah. left? Yep. 
<laughs> what else is going to happen? He gets photos of Yablonowitz coming out of a hotel with a mistress, and then he gets a lot of evidence from Mrs. Yablonowitz for publishing that photo. Suchak leaves his apartment one night and looks up from the street just in time to see it explode behind him. Amusingly, the next headline in his column reads, Room Wanted, Quiet Tenant. Instead of solving a mystery in the movie, we just see a headline that says, Yablonowitz was linked to Hellinger's death. <laughs> we're not gonna yeah. we're not gonna show how they figured this out. There's no moment. You know, there's no late night interrogation scene like all the president's men. It's literally just just the headlines part of all the president's men. <laughs> and he's the one who wrote this story. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I linked it with my mind. <laughs> yeah. That's it. As they prepare the front page with a headline about Yablonowitz fleeing the country, Howard notices an article about Nell Porter giving a lecture in town. He is for some reason shocked by it, even though he is the editor and obviously approved the article and its placement on the front page. Holy cow. I don't believe it. Also, who cares? A bar full of people congratulate Suchak for defeating Yablonowitz once and for all. Howard asks Suchak to confirm that he's not still in love with Porter because he doesn't want to lose his top writer. And you're not going to a lecture tonight? <laughs> no, thanks. Good, I'd rather you didn't. Well, I'm not. Good, better that you don't. Well, I'm not, for Christ's sake. For the paper's sake. Good. Fine. Fine. Good. We cut right to Suchak at the lecture. Oh my God, get it? Even though Howard told him not to go, Howard and his wife Sylvia are here at the speech for some reason, like yep. anyone gives a shit about eagles. <laughs> She discusses her research on bald eagles to the crowd, and when she opens it up for questioning, Suchak asks her about their mating rituals. Here's a question. Did Suchak ever write the actual eagle article? I don't think he did, first of all. Second of all, they never discussed mating rituals while he was out there. So I guess this is a legitimate question, and he didn't know the answer she was about to give. Uh, first, they chase each other. Uh, circling, dipping, twisting, screaming, testing. And then? Then they come together, their talons locking. Inseparable? For a short, very happy time, yes. And they fly that way? No, uh, not together. They begin to fall, plunging and tumbling down and down. Well, it sounds dangerous. But thrilling. Oh, what? Uh? Yes. And then? Then, when they're very near the ground. About to be smashed? They separate open their wings, and soar on the air currents. Alone? Each alone. That's the only way they can fly. And that's all there is? Unless they do it again. <laughs> After the speech, Suchak and Porter reunite, insisting they are over each other, and then they kiss. We dissolve to them plummeting to the ground with their talons interlocked, by which I mean naked in bed together. I have no idea where the story could possibly go from here because everything is resolved and we have 20 minutes left. Yablonowitz is defeated. The lovers are back together. Eagles Cap are saved? Eagles are saved. Yeah, but then they, we just had the analogy that they can't be They can't together. be together because they'll crash into the ground. Right. So just leave. And yeah. Go your separate Get out. And be done. She invites him back to the Rockies, but he's doing important work here in Chicago. Neither of them is willing to relocate for the other. We get more narration from Howard and his wife Sylvia for some fucking reason. These two can shut the fuck up already. <laughs> <laughs> like, I started to get mad at the movie now, where it's like, these other two characters? Oh man, I love them. I'm going to put more of these two talking. I need to hear what their thoughts are in bed at night. It felt like a Woody Allen film, where, yeah. where like, just these two unrelated characters are narrating what these other two characters yeah. that are Are these the fucking Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this story? They're completely irrelevant to the plot entirely. They could have been written out, and I wouldn't notice. Except I'd be less annoyed at the end of the film. 
Suchak walks with Porter down the street, and as they pass the newspaper stand, he says hi to Fiddle, the first time the man's name is mentioned. Fiddle is shocked to see a popular celebrity entertaining a woman for some reason. Suchak spends all day telling Porter how to survive in a city that she already told him she doesn't want to live in. As far as she's concerned, the only good thing about Chicago is Suchak. I still want to know what's wrong. And I still don't know what you mean. What I mean is, all you do is kiss me and look at me like I'm going to die. I can't imagine how hard it is for Blair Brown to watch this movie with that line in it now. It's like how we had 50 jokes in Bustin' Loose about Richard Pryor catching on fire. This is where the movie makes a very weird choice. Instead of a happy ending, where the characters end up together in one or the other town, it tries to make a happy ending out of them splitting up. Porter has tickets on a train back to the Rockies tomorrow morning. We cut pointlessly to Howard's apartment for some reason. Even though these characters are worthless and the scene doesn't matter, Porter is here too. Yeah. How did he talk her into coming to visit his editor and his editor's wife? And they're not sitting next to each other. No, they're on opposite couches, just sitting in silence for a while. And then Sylvia storms out. For some reason. And Suchek goes off to console Sylvia. Yeah, Sylvia is mad at Suchek, but... Because we don't get a whole scene here, we don't know why she's upset, and we don't know what she thinks Suchak did. Oh, Suchak, you are impossible. Sylvia pouts and runs away, and we'll never find out why, because we fade to black. Good thing we included this moment. If we faded to black on the previous scene, I would be completely lost. The next morning, Porter leaves early for her train, and Suchak heads to her hotel to take her there. When he finds her room empty, he carries his bouquet of flowers out to the street and flags down a taxi. After it pulls away, we can see another taxi parked behind it with the number 1138 on the hood. Hey! One of many cinematic references to George Lucas's first film, THX 1138. As in Empire Strikes Back before the Battle of Hoth, when General Riken says, Inroads 10 and 11 to Station 38. I found lots of websites claiming 1138 can be seen as a wing number on a plane in Raiders, but none of them included a screenshot, and the only wing number I remember was a C-3PO reference, not an 1138 reference. I think it's a C-3PO and Obi-Wan. No, 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 it's just Yeah, it's, C- it's an OB-3PO. Yeah. But it there's no 1138 on that plane. I don't know if there's one on a different plane. Suchak finds Porter at the old Chicago and Northwestern terminal, posing as Union Station. Suchak jumps on board Porter's train and joins her in a passenger compartment. I didn't want to see you again. What? I don't understand these characters, and they also have no chemistry at all. She tells him to get off the train, but they waste too much time kissing, and he decides to get off at the next stop so they can kiss more. Bill Henderson shows up as the conductor looking for tickets. Suchak asks if he can buy a ticket to the next stop, and when he goes to dig cash out of his pants, the conductor sees that he is wearing his underwear and understands what's happening in this compartment. Uh, that'll give you about an hour. When the train stops in Rock Falls, Suchak steps off and waves to her through the window. As the train pulls away, Porter cries in her compartment until she hears a knock at the door. I'll go as far as Cedar Rapids. He continues buying tickets to follow her all the way to the Rockies. They finally reached their last common stop, and the location looked super familiar to me. Specifically, it reminded me of a scene in Coal Miner's Daughter last season, and I realized that this is from the same director as Coal Miner's Daughter. Mm. So it might have been the same location, but they might have just been shooting in a very similar style as that. Turns out it's not the same location. But do you remember the last time we had our main character ride a train to Wyoming? Train to Wyoming? Uh, Heaven's Gate? Yeah. Yeah. Fancy train. Our lead characters say goodbye again for the eighth time in the last ten minutes, but don't worry, they aren't done. Wait just a 
goodbye. I know. Let's get married. Marry me. Be Mrs. Suchak. Come on. They get married in a general store, officiated by a local justice of the peace. They hear the honking horn of Suchak's departing train and have to leave immediately after their vows. They run together to the train as it slowly pulls away from the station. The justice of the peace, general store owner, and Deke are surprised that the couple are sticking to the plan of living on opposite sides of the country. You mean they aren't going to consummate? I think they already have. The train actually stops for Suchak to board and then starts rolling again. Porter runs after the train for a while, but eventually it pulls away and they're finally saying goodbye for the last time. Hanging off the last train car, Suchak waves to her with his hat, which is reminiscent if not an intentional reference to the ending of 1948's Three Godfathers when John Wayne waves goodbye with his hat from a car of a departing train. Credits roll over a wide shot of the mountains beside the tracks. The end. Well, not only that, uh, we get a song for the film. Yes. And as soon as I started hearing the singing, I was like, oh! <gasps> That's Helen Reddy. It is Helen Reddy. <laughs> I was so excited. I know Helen Reddy's voice anywhere. This is an original theme song for the film called Never Say Goodbye, which is amusing because the leads just said goodbye like 12 times. <laughs> and it's being performed by Helen Reddy, and the lyrics were written by Carol Bayer Sager, whose name is actually misspelled in the credits. Carol Bayer Sager also wrote, When you get caught between the moon and New York City, for Arthur earlier this year. That's the end of the film. Woof. So the only conflict that I feel like ever really sustains is that they can't live in the same city and they don't address it yeah they never they resolve that conflict. they don't have a resolution at the end it's not like cool ha- i'll come visit you so after you come mm-hmm. visit me we'll just stay in our separate like there is no resolution they just depart i i think what they were trying to do when he's giving her the tour and telling her how to survive it's just like oh, she taught him how to survive in the mountains. Now he's trying to teach her how to survive in the city. It feels like it's still him trying to lure her to, the, to yeah. Chicago, though. But I think what movie does this better is Crocodile Dundee. Because I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we've, we've referenced Crocodile Dundee like a couple times now. Um, is that she goes there to write the article about him yeah. and learns about surviving in the wilds of Australia. And then he comes to New York for the second half of the article and she is literally teaching him about things of new york city but it's much more interesting and it's funny because yeah. it's so fish out of water because he's never had any of these amenities yeah where she clearly grew up didn't grow up yeah, in she the says she grew up in boston or something yeah like exactly that. so it, it's him trying to tell him about the city is, is the city is rough it's like that's all you really have to say yeah like he's like oh okay i know how to defend other than telling him specific restaurants that you like yeah <laughs> like there's no real reason for any of this but yeah the there should have been more conflicts with like Oh, the risk of these poachers coming back, you know, men, angry men with guns who are now going to like face federal charges because of what you've accused them of. Maybe. Like, yeah. These people could come back. More people could come to do the same thing. We, that need, could... some, we need some shared trauma. Right. <laughs> or, or the Yablonowitz stuff could have stepped up a lot. Uh, like the closest thing we get is a bomb goes off in his apartment when he's not in it. And then that's the, the height of the danger in this movie. Yeah. But also... That is so brushed over. Like he doesn't. He's not. He's not upset about it. He's not really worried about it. Like he's just like, I guess I need a new apartment. Yeah, and honestly, that's impossibly dumb of Yablonowitz to be like, I don't know who bombed my main critic's apartment. I. The, what a crazy coincidence. I hope no one looks into it, especially not this investigative reporter who has been telling everyone all my dirty secrets and has connections to everyone I talk to. And she was lying when she said she was with the Department of the Interior, right? I don't think so. No? No. Is she? Is she? Did we establish that? We don't establish anything don't in this movie. It also <laughs> doesn't matter. Who cares? 
it's, uh, it's irrelevant to the plot um but yeah no i i just based on how quickly she came up with the words and she doesn't seem like the bluffing type i think that she told them the truth that she works for the department of interior and she's protecting these eagles and she knows all the legal statutes and she's ready to press charges if necessary and it's weird that these guys had name tags do they have name tags too i thought she just took their ids well no they had name tags clipped to their vests that's how she was able to get their ids oh weird because they wouldn't be able to get a hunting license in this area yeah and unless it's just like visitor passes for the park maybe and it's like it's like if you're going to go mountain climbing you need to have this pinned to your vest in case we find your body that's the other thing they were at the top of the mountain and all they had were guns they didn't have backpacks on yeah it's like how the fuck did you get up here unless a helicopter dropped them off (laughs) sorry another macgyver reference with the eagles yeah and and like they're shooting eagles with crossbows from helicopters from a helicopter (laughs) yep That, that happened this movie's a thumbs down for me. Yeah, it's a thumbs down, and I'm just really surprised that Spielberg saw a screenwriter in this movie because Lawrence Kasdan has done undeniably great work mm-hmm. after this film. So I don't know. I mean, maybe this was literally the first script that he'd written, you know, and it's literally just it was so early in uh, in his career as a writer that he hadn't learned those lessons and maybe things got hammered into him by spielberg and lucas over the course of empire and raiders that he got much better at storytelling but this is a mess and the characters don't change and every bit of tension is either immediately dissipated or completely unresolved by the end of the film yeah it's a thumbs down for me i i don't think i have i was trying to enjoy it I really was like, yeah. I, I was like really forcing myself to just like, so this isn't so bad. This isn't so bad, but, but thinking about it and looking at it, there, there's nothing, there's nothing happening. And there's, and, and I just feel really unsatisfied when it's all over. Yeah. Cause it doesn't have a typical act structure where you're, you're following the same plot from beginning to end. It's like the, it's like three movies stapled together. It's like a trilogy mm-hmm. that, someone made all as one movie and the three parts have no bearing on each other but yeah um definitely not great um what are we thinking letterboxed for this one jess i don't have it super high it's a. Uh, I have it at 91 out of 121 it's below the unseen and above four the four seasons okay is it the four seasons or just four seasons i think it's the four seasons i have it at 66 uh, which puts it below the first Monday in October, but above Kill and Kill Again. I have it in 86th, which puts it under Winter of Our Dreams and above Escape to Victory. Our director here was Michael Apted. Um, I always think first of the 7-Up series that he yeah. did, where he keeps coming back to the same kids that he's been interviewing since they were seven. We're about halfway between 63 up and 70 up, and I don't know if 70 up's going to happen because Michael Apted passed away after 63 up came out so um we'll see he also directed nell which is the name of the character in this movie gorillas in the mist the world is not enough chronicles of narnia voyage of the dawn treader specifically the writer here was lawrence kasdan he just wrote empire strikes back last season and he came back strong this season with raiders body heat and this all in one year later he writes return of the jedi the big chill silverado the bodyguard Dreamcatcher, Force Awakens, and most recently Solo, and he directs a few of those. The music here is from Michael Small, who composed Clute, 
The Parallax View, Stepford Wives, Night Moves, Drowning Pool, Marathon Man, Audrey Rose, The Driver, and Going in Style before 1980. We've heard his work so far in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and The Postman Always Rings Twice, and he's back for Rollover, The Star Chamber, Jaws 4, and Wagons East, which has another heavyset sketch comedy actor who was not long for this earth. Cinematographer John Bailey, we've seen his work lighting American Gigolo, Ordinary People, and Honky Tonk Freeway so far. He's back for Cat People and a bunch more Kasdan movies, Big Chill Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, and of course he does the Out of Towners remake. Editor Dennis Verkler, we just saw his work editing Burnt Offerings and later Xanadu. He cuts Sharky's Machine this season and later Airplane 2, Hunt for Red October, Free Jack, Under Siege, The Fugitive, and The Schumacher Batmans, among many others. John Belushi played Ernie Suchak. This is obviously his second collaboration and second flop with Spielberg after 1941. He's also in Tarzoon, Shame of the Jungle with Bill Murray in 1975, each of their first films. He's in Animal House, Going South, and Blues Brothers before this, and he only has Neighbors left. He was an original cast member of Saturday Night Live, which is probably what he's best known for, if not uh, the, the Blues I mean, Brothers or yeah. Animal House. Blair Brown played Nell Porter. She was Paul Simon's estranged wife or ex-wife in One Trick Pony last season. I forget if they had officially divorced. She was back earlier this season as William Hurt's love interest in Altered States. More recently, she was in a pair of astronaut movies in a row for Astronaut's Wife and Space Cowboys. Her latest big role was as Judy King, a sort of Paula Dean Martha Stewart proxy on Orange is the New Black. Alan Garfield played Howard McDermott, the editor. He's credited for the third time now as Alan Gourwitz after the stuntman in One Trick Pony. He was Harold Lutz in Beverly Hills Cop 2, Barnett in Nashville, Witkin in The Ninth Gate, and he also shows up in Tarantino's My Best Friend's Birthday. Carlin Glynn played Sylvia, his wife, his wife, she was may barber in three days of the condor Susie kroll in resurrection last season and she's molly ringwald's mom in 16 candles tony ganios played max birnbaum he was bartini the boxer who fought tommy lee jones at the end of Backroads earlier this season he's back next season as meat in porkies and he sticks around for every installment of that franchise and he's baker in die hard 2 Val Avery played Yablonowitz. He was jose in hud he was jake in the traveling executioner pascal in papillon He's in a few John Cassavetes pictures, and we've seen him so far as Wendell in Brubaker and Syl in Gloria. He's back right around the corner for Sharky's Machine, and later he's Chief Hallowell in Cobra. Liam Russell played Deke Lewis. He was a banker in Butch and Sundance the early years. Bill Henderson played the train conductor. He's the cop in Clue. He's a speaker at Fred the Dorf Dorfman's retirement party, but I will always think of him as the gas station attendant in MacGyver episode Birthday. <laughs> he's really grumpy about selling a tire to MacGyver. He's also an accomplished jazz vocalist, having performed with Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Tony Bennett, and Quincy Jones, among many others. Dream beside me in the midnight glow. The lamp is low. Bruce Jarcho played Hellinger. He was Roberto in My Bodyguard and Bones in Somewhere in Time. He's credited as Wayne in Scrooged, which from rewatching scenes of it i'm pretty sure is the guy in the boardroom who says children love an acrobat eddie schwartz plays jimmy this is his only acting credit but he has a lot of soundtrack credits on account of having written hit me with your best shot for pat benatar wow yeah ron dean played plesco he was emilio estevez's dad in the breakfast club detective kelly in the fugitive 
coached Yanto in Rudy, and he was Detective Crumb on Early Edition. A recurring character from Early Edition. In 2008, he shares a credit with Jesse, playing Wurtz in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. And the following year, he shares a credit with me by appearing in the pilot of Patrick Swayze's Swan Song, The Beast. I didn't actually get credited on Dark Knight. I don't know if I got credited on The Beast. <laughs> but we worked on them. Frankie Hill played Agatha. Frankie was Aaron Fields in War Games and Lane in Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Mike Baccarella played Delaney. He was Sean in On the Right Track earlier this season, Vito in Johnny Dangerously, and he also has credits in Major League, Mo Money, Rookie of the Year, The Fugitive, Miracle on 34th Street, Richie Rich, While You Were Sleeping, Primal Fear, and My Best Friend's Wedding, among many others. Zaid Farid played one of the muggers. He's back later this season as Rudy in Four Friends, and later he is a tech principal in The Other Sister and Kit's limo driver in Bowfinger. He's also credited as tow truck driver in Role Models, and I think that's from the opening scene where Sean William Scott gets the Red Bull car hung on the flagpole outside the school or something. <laughs> Dave Adams played Alderman. He's a video technician in Used Cars. He's back this season as a bank teller in Pennies from Heaven. Later, he's a reporter in Rocketeer and a prison guard in Bad Santa. Dallas Allender played another Alderman. First credit was as Chester Biggs in The Black Marble, which got a minisode earlier this season. He also appears in Below the Belt, which has a minisode coming soon. Ronald W. McLeish played the station manager. This is his only acting credit, but he has lots of camera and electric credits, including on a few later Kasdan films. Yana Nirvana played Blonde. She was an AD on one of the TV shows within the movie Stunt Rock. And later, she's Louise in Brewster's Millions. Tim Kazarinski played Reporter. He was a new writer for SNL at the time. Later, he wrote Edward Zwick's About Last Night with Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and gets a credit on the 2014 remake starring Kevin Hart. We've actually seen him acting on the show already as a workman in My Bodyguard and the photographer who takes Elise's ethereal photo in Somewhere in Time. He's back later this season as Pa Greavy in the next and final John Belushi film, Neighbors. Norm Tobin played Layout Man. His only other feature film appearance was Guido in Thief. Andy Goodman was a production assistant on the film, and the film is unfortunately dedicated to Andy, so it sounds like he may have passed away at some point during the production, hopefully not as a result of working on the film. Um, I couldn't find any information as to what uh, the cause of Goodman's death was. I think that's everything I have for Continental Divide. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly exclusive episode reviewing a title from the 70s, and a hand in choosing each month's film. Joining now unlocks 33 full-size 70s reviews and 38 minisodes. From November of 1972, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following six titles. 1776, Peter H. Hunt's musical retelling of the struggles of the Continental Congress during the American Revolution. It stars William Daniels, Howard De Silva, and Ken Howard. Asylum, Roy Ward Baker's British horror anthology film from Amicus Productions. It stars Peter Cushing, Britt Eklund, Herbert Lom, Barry Morse, and Patrick McGee. Dracula A.D. 1972, another British horror option, this time from the folks at Hammer, of course starring Christopher Lee in the titular Dracula role with Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. 
set this time in the present. It also stars Stephanie Beecham and Christopher Neem. The Mechanic, Michael Winner's action thriller about a hitman trying to teach the craft to a younger man. It stars Charles Bronson, Jan Michael Vincent, and Keenan Wynn. It was recently remade with Jason Statham and Ben Foster in the hitman and trainee roles. Solaris, Andrei Tarkovsky's space epic about a psychologist sent to a distant space station to determine what has driven the previous crew insane. Or, Terror at Red Wolf Inn, Bud Townsend's dark comedy horror story about a young woman winning a vacation at a Motel Hell-esque resort run by an elderly couple who serve human flesh to their customers, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this November. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The French Lieutenant's Woman, which IMDb describes like so. Anna and Mike portray two characters in a film set in 19th century England who fall in love despite the fact that Mike's character is engaged. So we have a film within a film story. We leave you now with a trailer for The French Lieutenant's Woman, or, if you like, The French Lieutenant's Woman. It has been recognized as a masterpiece of modern literature. It has given the world a woman and a love story so mysterious and unique. Only an actress of the most special talents could portray them on the screen. Meryl Streep in The French Lieutenant's Woman. I knew it was ordained that I should never marry an equal, so I married Shane. I am the French Lieutenant's whore. One woman in two love stories. I must see you. That would be very difficult. One before the cameras. I gave myself to him. One behind the scenes. You know what I say in the graveyard scene about going to London? If I went to London, I know what I should become. I should become what some already call me. One in a world where freedom is forbidden. You are a cunning, wicked creature. May I know of what I am accused? One in a world without rules. I want you so much. You just had me. My only happiness is when I sleep. When I wake, the nightmare begins. Her torture had become her delight. I didn't fear. Do you wish to hear her? Do you wish to see her? I cannot. I cannot. Do you wish to touch her? Meryl Streep, Jeremy Irons in a Carol Rice film. Written for the screen by Harold Pinter. Based on the novel by John Fowles. The French Lieutenant's Woman. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. There are few things better in life than listening to people who are both passionate and knowledgeable about their subject matter. The Projection Booth, with their wide and wild range of film discussions, is one of those things. Simple as that. The Projection Booth is the highest quality film podcast around. I love the focus on cult films, witty, informative banter, and amazing interviews. The Projection Booth is the best podcast out there if you're a serious film lover. 
the Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com.